In the sermon, we are in lesson 43 of the study of Romans and finds us at the beginning of chapter 13. And Paul is continuing his discourse on community life. He started this whole thing out with a common sense thought on community at the start of chapter 12 with this admonition. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, uh, so what he's going to be speaking about in the next couple of chapters is what is the will of God for our lives? And when I say for our lives, I mean for our lives as a community. What is our life in community supposed to be like? He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what does he mean by that? Well, he means that your mind will no longer be focused on what is good for you and your needs. But with a renewed mind, you'll be focused on your love for God and your love for your neighbor. Those of your community. A renewed mind is consumed with pleasing God rather than the world. A renewed mind lives within the commands of God and the fulfillment of the law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another. I made the point last week that the will of God is community. The commands of the Torah are for community. To live at peace with men and with God. The coming of Yeshua was to gather all men back to God. Show how to walk out the commands of God and build his community, his assembly. Not a new assembly as you sometimes hear with, or think of with the word church. But it is a continuation of the assembly that began with those who were righteous. Those like our father Abraham. Our father in faith. And our literal father, who was righteous as well, Noah. So the will of God is that we live at peace and fellowship with each other. And God. And not because of the law, not because it's God's law, but because we truly love one another. The will of God is that there is no male or female, no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, but we're all one new man in the Messiah, Yeshua. His will is not that we remain in fellowship with the world. No, he says, do not be conformed to the world. And he made it really clear to the Corinthians. We read it last week, but it bears repeating because the lesson of today depends on our understanding that Paul is speaking in Romans of community life and not life in the world. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Messiah and Belial? And what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you 
And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we're to be separate from the world. And also in chapter 12, he he lists the spiritual gifts, the talents, the gifts that God gives people to benefit all in the community. And although you can find these gifts at work in the world, things like teaching and exhortation, giving, and the others as well, when they're found in the world, they're used selfishly for the person's own benefit. However, if they're used through the grace of God, through the influence of God on your heart, then they are done not for your own benefit, but for the good of the community. And the glory and the paths on the back go to God because all things come from Him. And after the gifts, he begins with the things that show how we should treat one another. We're to hate what is evil. We're to cling to what is good. In other words, cling to the commands and the purposes of God. He defines that by telling us we should practice hospitality. We should share with God's people, not taking revenge on one another, but love one another as brothers in the Messiah. Now, You should know already that Paul did not write this letter using chapter and verse. There was no chapter 12 and there was no chapter 13. This was just one complete letter. The headings, chapter headings and verse numbers were added much later. You know, really, that's the way we should read this letter. That's why I've taken on in these last few years going through the Bible verse by verse. Because that's the way we should read these things. As if there were no chapters or verses. When we see a new chapter, we often think that he's breaking from one thought to another. But that's not always the case. You should know also that from what we've covered so far in this letter, that if he is going to change his thought, you'll know it. Because he'll use words like therefore and so on. But he uses no such thing as we move from chapter 12 to chapter 13. So let's do this. Let's back up a little bit in chapter 12 and read on through to 13 and you'll see this. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Notice that there is no new thought here. And where he says enemies, he's not speaking of those in the world. You know, if the United States were to be invaded and they were shooting at your house, that does not mean go outside and give those people some food and water so they'll be well-nourished to finish the attack on your house and your family and your city. That's not what he's saying. It merely means your adversaries within the community, those who maybe don't agree with everything, and you might, or someone who holds ill feelings towards you. And what I want you to see here is there is no therefore, no change in thought or anything that would lead us to think he's still not speaking of community life here. We're not beginning a new thought. We're still thinking and speaking of life within the community. We have not switched from speaking of community to speaking of the authorities in Rome. With that under our belts, let's begin chapter 13. 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. He says without a break... That everyone is to be in, in subjection to the governing authorities. What a governing authorities is he speaking of? Well, think about it for a moment. We have governing authorities in the city of St. Paul. As they had in Rome. However, when you walk through these doors, you're also under the governing authority of the synagogue. Just as in Rome. Once you walk through the doors of a synagogue... You were under the governing authority of that synagogue. I don't think, except in the broadest sense, Paul is speaking of the Roman government here. What I mean by that is, yes, we should all try to be good. We should all obey the laws for our own good. Stay within the authority of the civil government so that we don't become incarcerated or fined. That's a given. And let me say, the Roman government was a fearful thing. Dreaded. Even without Paul telling them that they needed to subject themselves. You did that. Or you were imprisoned. Or suffered death. And they all knew that. It's no different today. You don't need me to come in here on the Sabbath and tell you to subject yourselves to the government of St. Paul or Minnesota, or the United States, pay your taxes. You all know the penalties for that. I don't have to tell you that stuff, right? You know, I may not like the civil authority. I may not like the governor. I may not like the president. He may not be the one I voted for. He may have instituted laws that I don't like. I may not like, for example, the health care law. Or I might not like the speed limit set on the freeway. But it's the law. And I know I have to obey or be penalized in some way. For my own good, I should obey as long as it does not affect my belief in God or my walking out the commands of God. So for my well-being, and by that I mean so that I get fewer speeding tickets, I respect authority and I obey. If you don't obey the speeding laws, you'll receive fines. If I get too many tickets, I'll lose my privilege to drive. If I don't pay the tickets and I continue to drive after losing my license, I'll go to jail. So in the broadest sense, we need to respect authority and live within the secular law. That's a given. You don't need to hear that from me every day, every week. You don't need to hear that from your pastor or your teacher in the community. Neither did the Romans need to hear that. If they obeyed, didn't obey the Roman law, they were going to suffer. Everybody knew that. I'm a firm believer in Ecclesiastes 1.9, which says, That which has been is that which shall be. That which has been done is that which shall be done. There's nothing new under the sun. And I really think for the most part, we can look at behavior of people today and determine much about these letters. Well, you've never come in here and heard me preach or teach a course on civics or tax preparation. Right? But you've heard me teach many times on congregational government, congregational giving, 
and the rules of our community in general. Well, that's what's going on here as well. Another thing we should think of as we weigh Paul's statements, the law or the government in Rome wasn't even secular. We may think of it as secular, but it was not. The Roman emperor was a self-proclaimed god. And in his presence, you paid him homage as such. If you were to honor the Caesar, you bowed down to him and called him Lord as in deity. And then you would have broken a bad commandment. One of the biggies, the big ten. So for Paul to say something like that is really a stretch for me. The other thing that confirms for me that he's not speaking of civil government is we can look at the fruit of the church. Since it took this verse to mean civil government down through the ages. It obeyed the government and by obeying civil authorities without questioning, Christians have really been involved in some horrendous atrocities. Like, how do you suppose Hitler got the nation of Lutherans to do the things they did in Germany? You see, the problem is Paul is speaking of governing authorities within the community. Paul had to be speaking of the government within the synagogue or community. The ancient synagogue had a ruler, synagogue ruler or a synagogue president. It had a chazan or what we call a cantor. They were responsible for things like collecting taxes for both the temple and for Rome. The synagogue was the center for study, for prayer, for community meetings. They were responsible for discipline within the community. The synagogue was the seat of the Beit Den, or in in Hebrew or in English, the house of judgment. This is where the elders would decide cases brought to them. And if they decided that you deserve 39 lashes, then the synagogue ruler was responsible to carry it out. The Beit Den and the president of the synagogue could have you removed from fellowship. As we would say, excommunicated. The elders were responsible for halakha of the community. If you don't know what that word is, it's a Hebrew word which means to walk, how to walk out the commands of God. What was permissible? What was not permissible within the community? The point being was the synagogue was the governing authority within the community of believers of the God of Israel. And I believe that this is what Paul was speaking of. And we can see this that he had this same respect for the synagogue authorities. We can see it in Scripture as well. You know, we spoke of the classes within the Roman society. And the top of the ladder, for most, was to be a Roman citizen. Being a Roman citizen afforded you special status. Anywhere in the world, Roman world, you went. You had a special status because you were a citizen. And if we read Acts chapter 22, beginning with verse 25, we're going to see that Paul was a Roman citizen. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, it's illegal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. When the commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. 
And the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that Paul, that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. And a Roman citizen wasn't just taken out and beaten without first being convicted of a crime against Rome itself. If you harmed a Roman citizen who hadn't been convicted of a crime against Rome, you had a serious problem. Because they were coming after you next. But listen to what we hear Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. You see, in these cases, Paul submitted to the synagogue authorities without trial, without a crime against Rome, so that he could remain in fellowship and continue to preach the gospel in that synagogue. So this is speaking of synagogue government. And then he says in verse 3 of chapter 13, For the rulers are not a cause to fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. You see, it's really hard again. Let me just say this. It's really hard for me to think that Paul is speaking of Roman authorities here in this fashion as ministers of God for good. When he speaks about them this way elsewhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6 says... We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then again, he speaks of them this way in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Paul is no advocate for the rulers of this present evil age. He's a practical man. He knows that he must live among them, but he's not going to take a whole chapter of his letter telling his people what they already know. You must obey Rome as long as it doesn't lead you away from the love of God. He says, if we do good, we have no fear of authorities for they are a minister of good for you. The synagogue authorities were ministers of good. They took care of the Zedekah boxes, the Zedekah, the money, For the poor. If you were in good standing with God in the community and you had a need, they were there to help. They were going to help you provide what you needed. If you found yourself in a predicament with someone in the community and you were doing what was good, you had no reason to fear because the judges in the community were ministers of God who knew the law, who knew Torah, and would judge you fairly. Let me give you an example. A few years ago in Duluth, there were charges brought against moi. Imagine that. And they were going to remove me from leadership. Can you imagine? Not only that, but these folks in Duluth had met others from Kehilat Sar Shalom and it started to spread down here. And I was innocent of these charges the people made against me. 
Now, I had a choice. I could have ignored the charges and said, ah, to heck with you. And let the talk continue. But what would have happened? The community, uh, the adversary would have got in and he would have had a field day working to divide the congregation. So I took a different route, one that surprised those bringing the charges. They never expected this. I said, let's go to a Beit Din. I'll submit to the decision of the elders in the community. And if they find me guilty, I'll resign. You see, by doing that, I took the judgment out of their hands, out of the public opinion, and put it back into the hands of those who knew God's word. And the elders found the the charges baseless and the matter was concluded. And I make that point so that you understand their safety in a leadership that's established by God and follows the commands of God. If you submit. If not, you let the adversary or other people make the decision. And not the leadership established by God. The leadership established by God is a minister of God for your good if you submit. They know and live by the commands of God, the rules of the community. They know those. Anything, another thing, there's no one in leadership who's above the laws of community. I've seen elders in the same predicament I was in, in, and they were found innocent as well. Verses 4 says, But if you do what is evil, be afraid. It does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath, on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. You see, if you do what is evil, you have a cause to fear. Had I been guilty, I would have had a cause to fear. It says, it does not bear the sword for nothing. And a lot of people have taken this to mean he's speaking of civil authorities again. But that phrase is merely an idiom. It merely means... The authority to punish, which the elders of the synagogue had. I pulled this commentary down, which stated it clearly. Almost every commentary states the same thing, but this one states it rather clearly. He beareth not the sword in vain. The sword is figuratively put for the power and authority. He alludes to the customs of princes who had certain officers going before them bearing the signs of authority. The magistrate hath not his authority for nothing, for no purpose, but that he may punish evil as well as defend the good. You see, it's merely an idiom for the power to uh, punish. And while the elders of the synagogue do not have the power to put someone to death, like with the sword, the elders of the president of the synagogue did have the power to punish and remove you from the community, which in effect is death. You have no spiritual life left. Back then, you just didn't run to the next church down the street because there was no another church down the street. I point this out so that you'll understand we're still speaking of government of the synagogue or community. Now, there's one more thing you need to understand before we proceed, and that's this word minister, where it says minister of God. The word in the Greek is, is the same word for deacon, and, and I put the definition up here. A deacon. One who, by virtue of the office assigned to him by the community, cares for the poor and has charge of and distributes the money collected for their use. 
This word is also used for those who collected taxes in the synagogue, the alms for the poor. Romans collected taxes, and in Jewish communities, that was done by Jewish tax collectors. It was in turn brought to the synagogue and then to the temple or to the authorities. Temple taxes and Zedekah were collected. And with that in mind, Paul continues in verse 6 to say, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And he mentions four things here. And the first of those is tax. And the the, uh, word in the Greek means the annual tax levied upon houses, lands, and persons. Now there were not enough there's not enough info here to determine exactly what tax is being spoken of, but it is my thought that what he's speaking of here is the annual temple tax. There was a yearly temple tax collected in all Jewish community. And taxes in support of the temple were incumbent on all God-fearers, all proselytes, all the Jewish people as well. Everyone within the community had to pay this tax. Then he says custom. And the word here is is a fun one. We've looked at this word before. It's the Greek word telos. And it means, as we've used it before, to set out for a definite point or goal. Or it can be translated end or goal. But notice it also can be translated custom. We've used this word before when we looked at Romans 10.4. It's the word for end or goal. Romans 10.4 says, For Messiah is the end, or we could say the goal, of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so it's used as goal or end most often, but it's also used as custom. And I think that here it's used as customs as in tax. Remember, there's the annual temple tax, but then there were many needs within the community as well. And they were addressed in the same way. That said, to mention tax twice seems a bit redundant. So I I went to Mark Nano's commentary on Romans, and he suggests it might mean this. The fulfilling of good results to those concerned with the results of your righteous behavior. In other words, take responsibility have responsibility toward those who have taken on the responsibility for you and for the community. As I said, the synagogue ruler was the one who collected, if not the sole collector, certainly the one responsible for making sure the taxes were paid to the appropriate authority. So it's only right that he not have to fret about that giving. Amen? Those two have to do with giving. The last two have to do with respect for authority. And the first one, fear, means reverence. Reverence for one's husband, as this definition points out. He's saying have respect for those people. They've been established by God. If you want an easy way to think about it, think of, yourself, think of it as an ambassador to a nation. When he goes to another nation to serve, he has the full weight of the USA behind him. He carries the authority of a nation behind him. He's in close contact with the president and the Congress so that the will of the nation will be represented and he should be treated with, the, with, the, with that kind of respect. 
Well, the same here. The elders are in the same place. They should receive that same respect. And then finally, he says honor. Honor which belongs or is to be shown. And again, you know, for me, this seems a bit redundant, but I think that in this sense, Paul means that means more than just money. The rulers of the synagogue were responsible for a lot, as we have seen. They were responsible for carrying out the commandments, how to walk out the commandments. They were responsible for the education of the community, for what was taught in the community. Paul is saying, have respect for these people, have respect for the rulings of these men. If you disagree with the rulings of the elders or you think you're, you're not following Torah, go to them. Speak to them about it. Just don't cause problems. Don't draw people onto your side. If you do that, after the rumblings in the community, they may make uh, some kind of a statement from the pulpit explaining why they did this or why they do that. And if it's true and it holds up in Torah... Guess who's going to be standing there with egg on their face? Right? If you've gone too far and you're leading a rebellion within the community, you know what God thinks about that. We just went through uh, the Persha on Korach. But then he comes to the conclusion of the matter. And the conclusion of the matter is really simple. He says, Oh Nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the Torah, the law. He says, owe nothing except to love one another. In other words, we have a debt to pay. And the debt to pay is to love one another. Why would Paul refer to loving one another as a debt? Well, Paul is familiar with the words of Yeshua. Listen to what John says in chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remained in his love. I have told you this so that my joy in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. You see, the debt we owe is to Yeshua. And he tells us to repay this debt, we are to love one another. That's why Paul is saying things like, lay your life aside. Prefer your brother. That's the example set for us by Yeshua. And it's not just by example. He also commanded us to love one another. It's a debt to be paid. Look at what John says in chapter 13. Quoting Yeshua. Now, is the Son of Man glorified? And God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Little children... I am with you a little longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, 
all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, the debt we owe to the Lord is to love one another as he's loved us. You know, if you look at chapter 9, and we just went through that, if you look at chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul takes the time to tell us that the salvation of the nations was to make Israel envious so that they would turn to Messiah. They would look at the nations turning to God as prophesied by Isaiah and they would think the world to come was at hand or what we call the messianic kingdom was at hand and they would turn to God. You see, they would see the Gentiles turning to God through the Messiah and they would come to faith in Messiah as well. Well, Yeshua tells us how they're going to know the nations are turning to God through Messiah. And it's by the fact that we love one another. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Jewish people haven't turned yet. So maybe it's time we examine how we're doing at loving one another. Amen?